Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, consider tossing us a buck a month at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, or perhaps consider leaving us a nice iTunes review, perhaps something again like uh, Explain Deleuze to me. Taylor and I are very proud to bring you all John Rofe, currently at the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy. He has recently co-translated Raymond Rie's <laughs> The Genesis of Living Forms and has published books on Badu's Deleuze, A Guide to Deleuze's Empiricism and Subjectivity, a book on the philosophy of the market entitled Abstract Market Theory, and most recently a book on the works of Gilles Deleuze from 1953 to 1969. John, welcome to the happy hour. And I just want to say, first of all, that the Abstract Markets Philosophy book was amazing. as really good. I've very thoroughly enjoyed that work. So kudos to you for, uh, <laughs> for <laughs> I your appreciate hard work. It. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to, to talk with you about all these great thinkers. We always like to do this, and this is kind of a good way to get into the show. You mentioned a little bit about an encounter. Was it, was it Graham Jonas? I forget. You, you mentioned this encounter uh, with Salman Maimon's philosophy that introduced you to Deleuze, but do you mind giving us kind of a broader account for your first memories, an anecdote about sort of, of getting into philosophy and, 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 and sort of getting inspired to, um, to sort of take on that root and that engagement and, and further why Deleuze or how did Deleuze become so important for you? Sure, of course. Uh, you have my friend Graham Jones, who you mentioned there, that particular encounter and conversation was well after my initial run-in with philosophy. I effectively began studying philosophy as an undergraduate in an anthropology course. And the first philosopher who I really encountered there was Michel Foucault, obviously a fairly unorthodox figure in a certain respect, but uh, that was the gateway for me in through anthropology and Foucault. And Foucault led me to Lyotard and then Deleuze and then Derrida was a sort mm -hmm. of a sequence that I ended up following uh, off of my own bat, I suppose, just in reading, you know, like, uh, and, and there wasn't anything traumatic about this, which is a shame <laughs> because, uh, I mean, I kind of agree with Deleuze that thought begins in trauma. Um, it was instead a sense of um, my first experience is very platonic and almost embarrassingly Aristotelian, you know, the, the experience of wonder. Mm -hmm. Wonder in, I think, Plato's sense rather than Aristotle's like tepid sense. Uh, right. Perplexity, mm -hmm. but also just a sense of a very Nietzschean kind of sense of joy and, and power. Yeah. The, the feeling of being a bird of prey fundamentally not in the moral sense, but in the sense of just being suddenly free to mm -hmm. think, 
mm-hmm. thought himself being this this vector or power that was more than me, you know, and caught me up in a movement. And so that's my kind of the primal scene of my encounter with philosophy. <laughs> the positive one, but since then it's been, you know, it's descended into misery and perplexity uh, in a more kind of substantive way <laughs> since then. Uh, not really thanks to these four figures who were... Um, mm-hmm. uh, as a friend of mine likes to joke, my forefathers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just the philosophy is difficult, and mm-hmm. the social and institutional context today in philosophy is is menacing and demoralizing. And so the sequence that I, I just outlined was the sequence of my own reading, fundamentally, and drifting attention. I studied an honours year in Australia anyway. The honours year is like a fourth year at the end of a bachelor's degree. Honours year, uh, writing about Derrida and translation. Oh. And I was kind of fixated. I was a, a good Derridian monk. in. <laughs> but then, like, the, the literal night that I submitted my thesis on Derrida, I drifted through a very famous bookshop here in Melbourne called Readings and thought, well, I've got like $15 in my bank account still. Can I get a book to celebrate? Right. And Deleuze's little book on Spinoza, Practical Philosophy, yeah. just within reach. And that was the beginning of the end of my monastic Derridian existence, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's a good place to start with him. I mean, it, it, it reads differently from a lot of his other books on individual philosophers it's, yeah. it's kind of put together in an interesting way that that is unique right i mean it, it has a glossary it's it's got these right. interestingly different different parts it, it really is less of the there's less of the buggery going on and there's <laughs> perhaps perhaps i mean maybe there's some of it still but there is still there's more of a an expositional tone do you have a do you have a feeling about about that oh, yeah. uh, th- that work yeah, I mean, I think that's quite right. It begins with this amazing biography of Spinoza. Right. You know, like six or seven pages, which ends with this, but I still find it just like cripplingly moving to this day, mm-hmm. reading this, um, him talking about Spinoza's rejection of the negative. Mm-hmm. Yes. Against Hegel's critique of Spinoza that he did not discover the power of the negative, he had enough faith in affirmation and the positive, you know, and then reiterates this kind of beautiful ethical sort of Spinoza-Nietzsche equation idea of the thing that Spinoza was against everything that denigrated life. Yes. I mean, it still hits me like a truck reading this today. I think it's the fundamental component of Deleuze's significance to me as a philosopher is this ethical moment, which is not saying much because it's sort of one of the things that is most prominent, I think, in reading Deleuze. It's a wonderful little book. It's amazing. Yeah. This is something that we talked to with Daniel Smith about, right. you know, when Deleuze passed, Michel Serre, he's reflecting on this. This is a, this is one of those moments that hits me like a truck, too, where he's like, there's no way Deleuze would have done that. He wouldn't have committed suicide. He he went to get a, a breath of fresh air or something like this because it's totally against his philosophy of affirmation. And we learned in the in that discussion was that, you know, Dan had a. Uh, had an encounter with a, a pulmonary specialist and the fact that a lot of these medical wards either have their windows barred or they're on the first floor precisely because this is a common occurrence. And that was yeah. something that, that I didn't know. And that, you know, cause for the longest time, besides Sayre's quasi sentimental reflections on, on Deliz's untimely death, it kind of always had been talked about as, as a suicide, but, you know, putting that in context, 
And thinking about his philosophy, as you're saying, not that one can't choose to do such a thing, but that it seems uh, that that little tidbit, that little anecdote, which probably is based in some sort of fact, that kind of reiterates your point about this uh, continual, how do I say, commitment to a kind of affirmation. Not to get into the weeds too much, but I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm not convinced by that Sayers kind of concern. I think Dan's point is quite right. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a revelation to me, you know, learning these medical facts. But I mean, I, I'm drawn to the to think of the remarks about suicide by Spinoza, you know, in book four of the ethics, where he mm -hmm. says basically suicide is impossible, you know, because it would be an act that is destroy the self, but the self is by definition a striving to persist. It would be Deleuze degree zero, you know, he was the last things that he was capable of, you know, it's not suicide per se, it's simply the ending of the trajectory of, of action. I like that. That's well said, yeah. because you're right, because it there's a passivity, there's that reactive force to it, that seems, as you said, rightly, that would be, that would contradict this principle, the connotas, or, or however you want to put it. Right, right exactly, yeah. Obviously, the word suicide is very loaded <laughs> yes. in this context, too. I mean, the other person I think of is, is Hume, who wrote probably the only really pro-suicide tract in the history of modern Western philosophy. And, and it's, quite, it's quite beautiful what Hume says, which is like, there's no downside to this. You know, mm. If life has got terrible for you and for the people around you, well, then, yeah. you know, it's an act of joyfulness and a ease almost for Hume. Now, again, like we're talking about suicide, which is a, an extremely complicated issue in many yes. different directions but we should start our discussion with something you know chipper and well, now that we've got the, the well, now we've got that out of the way um, enough, enough philosophy to sadden right yeah 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 right right, right. <laughs> that actually is, is a good um that was one of the before we get to to cooper's question that was one of the follow-ups i had was as the epigraph you choose this is a kind of phrase that i've a phrase a sort of a the point that Deleuze makes, I see, I see it reiterated a lot, and you put it as kind of the uh, the epigraph for your volume, the volume one of the works of Gilles Deleuze. This notion that philosophy that doesn't sadden anyone, that doesn't, that it's not worth anything. I've talked to friends about this, where the stupidity that is supposed to be harmed is not necessarily the same thing as, for example, the transcendental idiot or, or things like right. this. There's something, I wonder about your, your take on this line about uh, philosophy's role is to sadden, it's to, it's to harm stupidity, and how you read that. I think of it as a kind of a celebrated, famous quote from Nietzschean philosophy. Yeah, Do you have a take yeah. on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very striking, first of all, that Deleuze would say anything like this. Right. In a book that's sort of like bent against the figure of the negative. Right. He's just perpetually hammering on Hegel, negativity, slavery, mm -hmm. and then right in the middle of the book, the only use of philosophy is to sadden, attriste. Mm -hmm. I had to look up the French because I was sure that it had been mistranslated. But why put it at the front of this book? Well, in part as a challenge, you know, mm -hmm. a challenge to our habits of reading Deleuze. You know, like one of the problems with reading Deleuze is that you get this sense you learn and you read that Deleuze is about affirmation and living. And that's a way of sometimes avoiding some of the things that he says about mm. sadness, about harming, about the death drive. Yeah. Yeah. First time of his work, you know, and so I put it there in a way as a, as a kind of way of refreshing the palate, if I can put it like that. 
so that we can come back to Deleuze fresh and setting some of our presuppositions aside. That was part of the idea. The other is that, I mean, it to me is the only universally acceptable definition of philosophy. You know, anyone that disagrees with that, I don't want to talk to that person at all ever again. That's right. the end of the conversation. Now, you, you rightly point out that the issue of stupidity is complicated, right? Yes. Um, I mean, here, Deleuze uses the same word here, betise. Yes. You know, animality as he does in difference and repetition. But in difference and repetition, as you say, there's two senses to the word stupidity, right? Yes. One is this kind of the stupidity of opinion, doxa. And the other is this transcendental stupidity of thought. So thought really has these two poles of stupidity. We tend to just daily move through the stupidity of opinion, no thinking. Mm -hmm. And then right. when we have an encounter with something that forces us to think, we're flung into the other direction, you know, and that now we are gripped with the fact that there is no thinking yet. I must think, and yet I cannot. This kind of like moment of the genesis of thought, you know. So thought, yeah, there's it, two kinds of idiots. It's one of them is easier to deal with than the other, but thinking insofar as it exists begins with this second transcendental sense of the idiot. It's kind of an interesting and complicated structure of a sort of a, psychogenetic structure, if you like. I like how you put this because it calls into question some of these received notions that we get from, at the very least, from Descartes and Kant, right, on good sense and common sense, as though thinking were sort of universally possessed and, and sort of well distributed and as though it were a thing that doesn't really need to be, that one has to presuppose sort of as a faculty, whereas Deleuze is calling that into question because it's it is for him about isolating this genetic element. That's one of the keys that, at least, again, in this early work, that's one of the keys that, are, that is put to the foreground is the transcendental idiot does have this positive function as opposed to a purely negative one. So that's kind of what I was thinking about with harming stupidity, where the stupidity would be that of opinion, but also that of of what would be states of dominant powers right. that obviously would... Well, just as a side, I think of um, Charles I, I believe, either did or wanted to outlaw coffee houses that were becoming popular <laughs> because caffeine stimulates, it gets people talking, and then ideas start to be generated. And so, Terrible. you know, you know, think you can't let people think too much. I guess that was kind of why I, I like that you put that at the front of your book. And, um, and it, it, is, it is kind of to, to call into question that we already sort of know we already have the presuppositions, objective or subjective, about what it means to think, what it means to philosophize, even what it, yeah. what, what Deleuze is doing. I think that's very important to recognize, yeah, that just reading Deleuze or going to a Deleuze study conference doesn't sort of like make you immune to the stupidity he's talking about. <laughs> it's, another, it's another possible form of it, you know. Now, look, this does actually bring us back to one of your earlier questions about Maimon, sort of the next step, I suppose, that... Mm -hmm. um, I put that thing at the front of the book also as a reproach to myself, really, for having interesting with a certain kind of cliched image of Deleuze for such mm -hmm. a long time. And as you, you mentioned uh, in the introduction to that book, I, I shout out my friend Graham Jones, who's a wonderful Deleuze scholar and unfortunately little known today. Uh, his PhD thesis, which I think he published, he put submitted in 2002, was just this kind of still like material in it that people are catching up with. Interesting. Um, it's sort of oriented around the conviction that there is this kind of Maimonian, Solomon Maimon core to Deleuze's project in difference and repetition. And what makes that stand out, Maimon, is, is this genetic ambition that you've just touched on. Yes. You know, Deleuze is a post-Kantian genetic, transcendental genetic thinker inspired by Maimon. 
for a long time, I used to quip that if you understand Maimon and Freud, you're pretty much going to have a handle on all of Deleuze up to 69. <laughs> and I think that's basically still true. I mean, Maimon packs in, you know, Kant, packs in Leibniz and the calculus, packs in Spinoza, but with this genetic accent or ambition. It's interesting, too, that I believe Kant read and at least in letters yeah. discussed Maimon's work and was yeah. fascinated, but perhaps not necessarily convinced or maybe maybe was was repressing a little bit about uh, this, this thinker <laughs> that, that might have already challenged his uh, his system kind of right in the well, in the in the midst of it. No, I mean, that's true. He, I mean, Kant was getting uh, was subject to a hail of criticism when the critique mm-hmm. of reason came out and. His friend Marcus Hertz sends him a copy of Maimon's essay on right. transcendental philosophy. And Kant, you know, Kant is getting old at this point and probably right. didn't like his friend sending him a giant unsolicited <laughs> book in the mail. <laughs> but he replies to, with a letter saying, nobody has understood my work so well as Maimon. Right. So it is very strange that he's one of the figures that's fallen out of circulation. I think he's a remarkable, very idiosyncratic philosopher, but remarkable. The other thing to say about Maimon, of course, is that, you know, he did for a living what many philosophers are going to be doing for a living from here on in which is sit in pubs and if people bought him drinks he would like talk philosophy with them i mean honestly that sounds living the dream you know if, if you can it's not too bad if, if you can reduce your your desires enough to sort of just have that that kind of conviviality which as cooper and i kind of this is one of the reasons for our little assemblage yeah i mean uh, machinic un- machinic unconscious happy hour right yeah yeah i mean it's 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 it fits perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to describe this to Cooper that that it, it reminds me of after you mentioned conferences. It reminds me of like after the conference, little cohorts of individuals right. go out to the pub, to the to the bar, and get drinks, and that's kind of where a lot of the the real yeah. fun occurs. That's when you can kind of let loose some of the affectation, whatever you want to call it, the prim and properness. You can let your hair down, and you can kind of discuss ideas yeah. in, in a in a little bit a more informal way, but also sometimes unexpected uh, encounters can happen there where you won't necessarily get them from most, not all, but most conference questions. A lot of, I don't know if this is still the thing, hopefully it's fallen out of fashion, but a lot of uh, conference questions that I have heard and seen are like posturing and let's talk about my thing. It's horrible. It's uh, disgusting. Yeah, actually. No good. I agree. I mean, the real conference is always the What's in the shadow of the conference? You know, yes, the academic, uh, I don't know, institutional masturbation. Disgusting. <laughs> Cooper had a good question that I wasn't thinking about, but I thought that it would be worth jumping into uh, abstract market theory. As Cooper said, he he really enjoyed that book, and I thought that it was I was blown away by thinking about Mayasu, for example, or Ruye in this context, and I I loved that. But Coop, take over, my good friend. Perhaps we should even start out by excavating perhaps the genesis of why you decided to tackle this project for starters. If you ask yourself, what is the market as a philosopher? I mean, I literally had not nothing. Like I thought <laughs> it's complete emptiness, but it always bugged me. It's a bit akin to the way that people talk about the economy, you know, in mm-hmm, yeah. media. what are they talking about? You know, exactly. So that's half of it, right? And the other half was that I had some friends who were working in a management and marketing department, if you can believe that, at the University of Melbourne, who were coming to my Deleuze seminars. And they were like, okay. we want to work on the market. Are you interested in that at all? Like, <laughs> Why don't you say that? And so that kind of worked out really well. I ended up getting a really 
wonderful postgrad fellowship in this faculty of, of management and marketing and was around all of these people who were working on the history of economics and mm-hmm. um, sort of like active network theory and the social studies of finance, um, these kinds of, let's say, sociological modes of investigation of economics. Right. And so that was an extremely rich. I guess the third thing would be my encounter with the work of Eli Ayash, who's yeah. kind of central to the setting the project up. And he was a, I mean, he's a philosopher, but he works at a derivatives software firm based on ITO 33 in Paris that writes software for banks to use in pricing and trading derivatives. And so his book, The Blank Swan, B-L-A-N-K, The Blank Swan, gave me the first kind of step in the right direction, I think. I think what I really enjoy about the book was how you sort of apply all these Deleuzian concepts to the market. It really just kind of helps ground them for someone someone like myself who's in sort of my still in my philosophical apprenticeship, let's say. Well, I mean that never finishes, right? <laughs> yeah, true, right? Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Along with that, I think my first question was that I've been sort of wrestling with today was would you consider the market or markets rather to be like an abstract machine or would it be more like an assemblage? Because my take was, it feels like, you know, again, being somewhat of a novice with Deleuze, because there's a, the, what's the primary function of the market would be to calculate price ultimately. So I think that lends itself to at least the appearance of a type of machinism, but I'm not so Hmm. well-grounded there. I suppose there are a number of ways of coming at this. Maybe the most sort of straightforward way would be this to say that I think that when we talk about price, we need to distinguish three moments of price, and these have a connection to temporal modalities as well. But mm-hmm. first of all, there is the writing of price, which mm-hmm. is the act of pricing something. This can be done by anybody who is, let's say, in shorthand, who occupies a certain social position of some kind. Not just anybody can write a price for something, although right. increasingly today we have access to trading apps, for instance, that right. allow us to run. Prices. Anyway, so there is the act, the act of writing price, first of all, which is takes place in the present. Price then is inscribed. And the main, as it were, kind of being of price, in my view, is as inscription. Um, it's recorded. Mm-hmm. It's recorded, I would say, inscribed in the surface of the market. And there's the kind of mid chapters, I think three and four of the book are trying to work out what does it mean to say that something a price can be inscribed in the market. Right. So that price sort of, as it were, is latent, it's, it insists or subsists at that level as a kind of memory of pricing, if I right. remember like that. Then there's the third moment, which is the what I call the realization of price, may not be a good word. When we see a price, for instance, even if we just go into a supermarket and you see the price of milk on the shelf, we take the price there in terms of value. So we realize the price as value, or we could say, I think we misrecognize price as value. We, as, as embedded in a social practice, we can't treat price as pure quantity. So when we confront it, we, as we interpret it, make sense of it in terms of value. And this to me is the, one of the constitutive functions of capitalism is to like, uh, systematically obscure the difference between price and value. And that's not necessarily a strictly negative thing. It's sort of productive in its way. You know, it forces us, the price in this sense is like, a problem in Deleuze's sense. We're forced to resolve the problem, to make sense of it. And in this sense, the price sort of opens up towards the future because it, it, provide, it adds something to our experience of social reality that can't be made sense of in current terms. We have to create a value for the price. 
and this is the third moment, if you like. And, and this is obviously just, just going on all the time, all three of these things parallel with one another. I suppose that's one way of sort of summarising it. Where does the assemblage come into the picture? I think I'd have to say that we can identify social reality, society as an assemblage, mm-hmm. but that the kind of inscriptive moment is what writes on the surface of the market is effectively a kind of abstract machine to use these terms. However, that said, I really am very reticent to use the phrase abstract machine, war machine, and in particular, I want to get away from any sense that we're dealing with something that's ideal here. Um, right. There is a kind of materiality to all of this. It's not virtual, you know, mm-hmm. it's tentative. Yeah. So I don't right. know if that clarifies anything, but that's sort of one way of putting the project of the book. Now, when Cooper and I were discussing this either or, which may be restrictive, but it's it's an interesting thought experiment. I kind of had the idea that markets seem more like an assemblage insofar as, yeah. you know, in uh, I believe it's in the micro politics, the segmentary plateau uh the ninth one, I think, I'm trying to remember, they are discussing Gabriel Tard and they they kind of are discussing his innovations against someone like Durkheim, who's focusing on these macro representations, right? And Gabriel Tard is focusing on, you know, these little innovations in bureaucracy, et cetera. But they have this claim that beliefs and desires are are like the two aspects right. of every assemblage. And I was kind of thinking on a very broad, superficial level, like, what goes into something like markets and pricing and, and values, all these these different things are, are kind of these confused movements of beliefs and desires. But again, this is kind of superficial and was just for fun. I didn't know if you had a reaction to that. And uh, if not, then, uh, you know, it's something that can be, be left aside. But there is obviously at least some play of beliefs and desires going yes. on, right? Yes. It's worth talking about this because beliefs and desires are kind of two elements of what we could call orthodox economic thought today, but Interesting, really, yeah. you know, a, a version of neoclassical economics, mm-hmm. right? um, the rational actor kind of approach to things. So I think it's important to challenge the conceptions of beliefs and desires that we get in that kind of idiotic right. account. Of <laughs> now that said, I don't know. Uh, that's all I have to say. <laughs> I could speculate, hey, that- but it's, yeah, I'm not sure how to bring the tide in other than to say, I think that, there has to be an emphasis on the genetic element, in my view, like mm-hmm. what engenders beliefs and desires in the sense that Todd is using the word. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess that's why I was I was uh, in some of my other questions, although, again, it's um, it was maybe privileging the fact that you've written extensively on Deleuze's first book or at least his first singly authored book on empiricism and subjectivity, where, you know, Hume is thinking through the sort of uh, genesis of, of beliefs and and how they, uh, you know, there's there's this sense in which we believe too many things, right? On the one hand, I don't have to reiterate all that, but that, I guess that's maybe why I was skewed in that direction and, uh, and thinking about how, you know, there is this kind of yeah. monstrous aspect of, of markets that involve us in in this play, this whole, even with something as banal like uh, inflation, there's all this, this all, there's all this movement towards this investment of prices going up and down, the, the worth of dollar, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of banal. I guess it was more of like a lay person take or whatever. It was just a, just, just a fun little, little thought experiment. Uh, the, yeah, the Hume connection is interesting, not least because you know, Hume was one of the more important writers on economic thought in that period, even though his account of, let's say, money is, like, wrong. It's avowed today. It is very interesting the way that he brings economics into his philosophical account of society. 
Uh, I have to get that idea of belief in economic practice a bit more thought, I feel. No, that's that's completely fine. And it, and it's it is interesting though, just to speak of money. I mean, it's um, you know, recently we've been going through anti-Oedipus chapter by chapter, and and they're very clear about the insertion of an abstract equivalent like money into markets that previously weren't sort of decoded by it. It basically ruins the the relative autonomy of those mm-hmm. uh of those different modes of exchange and, and overcodes them and and sort of, you know, uh it just kind of ruins <laughs> ruins things, right? Uh, to a certain extent. Well, I think yeah. The, the second book, the the second book on on economics that I'm I'm kind of slowly working on is yeah focused on money. The relationship between money and memory is sort of the central. That's interesting. It is interesting too that you kind of preface your book on abstract market theory with pulling from someone like Zimmel, who has a philosophy of money where he's like, it's not an economic investigation it's a philosophical one you you kind of adopt that terminology too for abstract market theory that you're interested in a philosophical approach to the market and one of the criteria that you bring to it are two axioms i thought maybe we could talk a little bit about this yeah. this notion of what is it the first one is like a, an axiom of methodological eminence i believe it's something like this do you yeah, want yeah, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about about your criteria your axioms I mean, the reason why they're stated as axioms is, I mean, it's sort of, if I can put it this way, pedagogical. There's a great resistance that I was feeling coming from the point of view of the sociology of yes, basically. It wanted to reduce all meaningful reflection on economic practice to a sociological matter of observation. Um, right, In other right. words, and this is a broader issue, there's a kind of one strand of contemporary social thinking that aims to marginalise and eventually eject philosophy from any legitimacy. It's sort of reflected in this movement towards so-called um, the ontological turn, you know, in anthropology, for instance. Interesting. The identification of philosophy with colonialism, basically. Mm. Now, that's a whole complicated issue. Obviously, right. there are colonial aspects of philosophy that are quite profound, but let's just bracket all of that. It's a whole thing. So the reason why I started by posing these axioms was was to kind of as circuit breakers to say there is a philosophical approach that I'm doing and I'm going to crystallize it in these axioms. And the first axiom, the one that you mentioned of methodological imminence, is really just, in my view, to say, okay, I'm doing philosophy now, which is to say my engagement with the market is we form a concept of it without mediating this conceptual creation through social practice or social sociological perspective. Right. I'm not going to be looking for, in other words, empirical justification. Mm-hmm. This is not what philosophy is interested in. So it sort of means sort of, what's that metaphor? Nailing my colors to the mast, you know, like saying, okay, we're going to stop invoking the social as the mediator between the knower and the known. Right. I'm just going to think philosophically. Now, if you don't think that's possible, and some people don't, then that's fine. But, you know, it's time for you to get off the boat at that point. <laughs> there is a value to it because precisely... It would be if if you didn't do that, you would be begging the question, at least with one of your interventions and the different conflations that you're trying to diagnose as a problem, right? Particularly price and value, the market versus markets and what is it, the market and the social, something like this, like these three conflations, if you were to already bring in the social as a means of investigation, you'd kind of be begging the question. That's it. Yeah. So that's what that axiom means. Is exactly what you've just said. We've got to stop doing this. Otherwise, the market itself will be forever obscured. 
and self-justifying, and, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Hundred percent. If you look at the way that the sociology of knowledge people, the active network theory, basically approach issues right. is to exclude a priori. Ironically enough, the capacity for a concept to be decisive. It gets us back to kind of Deleuze's point about you know there is this kind of naive idea about knowledge and problems that problems are kind of given to us on a standardized test to solve rather than the true power being in formulating the problems. There it is. That's exactly right. The other way to put it, I think, or let's say a complementary way is to Mm -hmm. say that philosophy can be transcendental, which is to say that the things that we are interested in are not always observable, to use one word that was kicked around a lot by these Mm -hmm. sociologists, that there are conditions for observability as such Mm -hmm. that we can investigate. And this is the philosophical move, or one way of putting it in any case, that the sociological approach forecloses. To me, in a way that the, the conclusion of the book there's a good summary of like, I think there's an obvious value to sociology and history and so on, but we have to understand that they are discrete forms of investigation unrelated mm-hmm. to philosophy. Um, right. And philosophy itself is concerned with uh, form. It's kind of formal investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is good. And just uh, a last, I guess, a last question, you know, before, uh, not to belabor the point, but the, the second axiom that follows, I just wonder about, you kind of say that, everything that belongs to the market is going to be sort of at stake here. I wondered, I wasn't exactly sure maybe why that was necessary to to state after the methodological eminence, but perhaps you can kind of unpack exactly what you mean by that. And I suppose the follow-up, if you would rather kind of uh, say that it does necessarily follow, what what exactly abstract means to you? And I believe I had the quote here. It was something about... um, but it was something about the the real. I don't mean to. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you speak in your own terms. I'm I'm sorry. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the real, real on its own terms. terms. There it is. Okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> what I mean by abstraction in the book, and I don't want to go much further than simply what I say here. I don't want to tangle with Hegel. You know. Sure, first. sure. But I I mean by it precisely what the first axiom indicates, which is you know that the abstraction is not sort of like as it were kind of drawing away from something. It's separating out something from these kind of other factors it's a gotcha. of rarefaction or bracketing or the transcendental move you know depending on all of those things quite correct in their way the secondary axiom i do say i think that it's sort of derivative from the first one but it's meant to indicate that a lot of people who approach the question of the market take one or some phenomena and treat them as definitive eggs Ex- okay leave, leave things out yeah and it's the same kind of gesture that we find in Kant, you know, that we're just going to focus on every day, me walking around the town every day in the afternoon. <laughs> this is going to be the paradigmatic nature of first-person experience, you know, mm-hmm. what Deleuze calls tracing. And that's the same thing that happens. So Ayash is one person that does it and says only human beings can write prizes. That's clearly not true. Algorithms can write prizes. In kind of neoclassical economics, there's this kind of idiot idea that money is irrelevant in market processes it's so shocking i want to repeat it because even i (laughs) there is no theory of money in neoclassical economics no right it's like fucking insane yeah if i can you don't mind me swearing no no please please do i love it so i mean that's another example it's unjustifiable the exclusion so there are these kind of a priori exclusions that can get made that I wanted to push back on. I mean, Ayash example was the one that I foreground in the book, this yes. exclusion of algorithmic pricing. But uh, And that seems strange because that's something that he does for a living. 
right? Or that's something well, yeah, at least that's right. Or at least yeah. that's something that he facilitates or or is working. It's not almost like he's too close to it, right? That he and the exclusion you're talking about, the exclusion of a theory of money from neoclassical economics. It also seems like another one of those presuppositions that we, yep. we just mentioned, right? It's it's just oh well, of course we have money. Let's not even bother with that. That doesn't even need to be said. But that's a contingent phenomenon, right? No, I mean, no, that's right. That, it tells us nothing about economic processes to consider money whatsoever. Paul Samuelson, the infamous economist, you know, he says that basically capitalism is a complicated form of barter, a barter relationship, which is insane. Yes. Insane. And completely yeah. explains nothing, you know. It's another naturalizing, self-justifying move yeah. to do something like that. Yeah, that's, uh, right. that's right. It's, yeah. it's kind of perverse in a certain way, right? It's, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, that's right. It is. Yeah. Perverse is a good word for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as for Ayash, um, God bless him. He's basically a kind of a market existentialist, if I can put it that way. You know, the, <laughs> the market maker is the, is the hero. You know, it's the Sartre. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, pour soi, you know, that's sort of like, Despite all of the contextual factors, all of the in itself, like, is going to say, I choose thus, you know, mm-hmm. right price. And that's why an algorithm can't do it because they are not, as it were, the heroes of pricing. They're the NPCs. I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, so it's pretty strange. I think that's really underlying his thought in a way that he hasn't really reflected on. But anyway, no, no, no. Uh, this I, is I, all I good. Guy, but yeah, it's, uh, it's very strange to see this kind of uh, heroic narrative cast around the the market maker you know i guess that that's to not heroicize it would force one to perhaps take on a slightly more critical vein a slightly more condemnatory aspect because there is a lot that is not very laudable obviously we don't have to get into that that seems like a kind of a a self-evidence uh (laughs) that I actually was thinking about this question earlier today, mm-hmm. reflecting on one of the other questions that you you two have posed yeah. about. My use of the example of gun legislation in the book on Hume. I know this seems completely unrelated, but bear with me. No, 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 um, please. I, I, you know, I, I, I was curious because I was thinking a little not not to cut you off or the foreground, but I was thinking about Australia's unique way of dealing with this issue, and I hoped you would you would say something about that. I can't remember what great act of gun violence provoked me to use that example in the book when I was writing it, uh, in 2018, I guess. No, I can't have been that. 2015, whatever. There's so many. It's, e- it's, it's easy to, to kind of not right, be able to right. separate them. So it, it was obviously a moment of fury and despair that led me to, to write it, even in that anodyne way that I introduced it there. I put that in that book. This is just the, let's say, warm-up to my main point. Sorry, this is so convoluted. I, I no, put it in the book great. because... It's a way of, um, it was a way for me of foregrounding what I find completely unacceptable in Hume's social and political thought, which is interesting. His incapacity to reflect on the nature of violence, basically. Hmm. And so the account I give there is what Hume would say, on Deleuze's view, what Hume would yeah. say about guns, which is that the, the use of guns and the meaning of firearms in a society is is kind of on it's a matter of ongoing the production of social norms and practices it's completely positive there's no negativity in this Uh, Mm -hmm. it's just like shifting practices of different kinds but to come back to what we were talking about before i mean i think fundamentally one of the important things about deleuze's relationship to the social thought let's say is that it despite wanting to abjure any reference to negativity it's always got room for a theory of violence 
Interesting. It's pretty clear in Nancy Oedipus, you know, each form of Soceus involves a violence of its own kind. And that includes the kind of violences, that, to come back to what started all of this, includes those forms of violences that attend a market-based capitalist society. Mm-hmm. You know, these very strange indirect forms of violence alongside the most, like, shocking forms of direct of murder. murder. Yeah, so, yeah. As they kind of memorably put it in what is philosophy, you know, there is no democratic, there's no social de- democracy that was not said, not called for people to fire on people in the ghettos, you know, yeah. and that's simply a fact. Yeah. And that's something that Hume could only incorporate as one variation in social reality. And I think that's the wrong way to look at the question of violence, basically. It seems like Hume would, you know, if property is one of those sort of norms that we build up the social relation from, then it seems like he would be siding with some Second Amendment kind of fundamentalist views that, you know, maybe disregarding the well-formed militia (laughs) aspect and focusing on the second part that, of course, that it's a, you have to begin with private property in order to to build these, these. And so, but that's interesting too, because, and I don't mean to digress too much and we can sort of finish up this topic here. But, you know, I was thinking about how you you point out that Hume and Deleuze maybe even points this out, if I remember correctly, that Hume proceeds differently than someone like Hobbes or Rousseau in a sort of negative idea of society and institutions. But you're pointing out this problem that Hume's kind of not solved, at least not really addressed very well, which this kind of makes him a little bit more like Hobbes if he can't deal with violence in this way, because it does seem like Gun ownership then would be back to the kind of state of nature, the war of all against all, something like that, right? Right. Well, I think what he would say is that he's never going to allow that kind of move. I mm-hmm. think what he would say is that, I mean, Hume is a conservative thinker, mm-hmm. but I don't think we could say that he's any kind of originalist in this sense, because right. the meaning of something like, since we're talking about the Constitution, is itself kind of changing as social norms and practices change. There's no sense in gesturing back 50 years to recall another important date at the moment in the debates around the Supreme Court. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Because the, the important thing is the is the kind of like ongoing foundation movement of social practices, how they reinforce and cut across and modify right. one another. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Th- there is this kind of, as you say, you, you emphasize the, the issue of property, and that's really the basic thing like for him. The, the first right, if I can put it that way, the first, yeah. first kind of fundamental social fixture is property ownership and that this underpins all other kind of social norms and practices. Right, right. We, we can't have society without private property, basically. So that's obviously extremely conservative. It's got a, I mean, we're not talking about Marx here. What's interesting though, it does seem like in the, in the wake of Hume, not just obviously Kant and the dogmatic slumber and all these other things, but you do see in the in the next century a kind of, or at least at the end of that century, a, a flourishing of of sort of utopian ideas that would call into question this this very notion. And I think that this is part of the one of the benefits of chapter three of Anti Oedipus with historicizing and doing a genealogy of of sort of of different forms of social machines and and ways of organizing is is precisely calling into question this seemingly basic fact or axiom that you have to have private property to have a society or associates. And I think that that's obviously a a kind of historical blind spot, right, Uh, for for him. The problem, of course, is not, if that is true, you know, like, let's recall, I mean, he was the most famous in his life for writing a massive history of England. (laughs) 
it's also because of the way that Hume understands experience, you know, like an object is a kind of stabilized collection of impressions and ideas. Right. So that kind of stability is built into his epistemology and it comes to inform his social ontology, if you like. That's like good. Stability and stable production of unity is sort of the first thing in mm-hmm. all realms. Now we can get back to um, your book on abstract market theory. I know that Coop, you had some some more interesting things in our notes. I might rely on you to help me maybe perhaps formulate an actual, hey, an actual question here. But as someone who is both fascinated by time and cinema, and I know that you, <laughs> yeah. you, you spent an entire chapter from the book on temporality. So I was just kind of curious, perhaps discussing a little bit about what you drew from, from the cinema works. Because I feel like Bergson, too, is going to be a major part of this temporality element as well. Perhaps first, maybe go through sort of what you saw within the cinema books. I'm assuming that perhaps the time image would be the more relevant one based on inscription and the way that these sort of prices function in the market. But I'll let you, if that's a fair enough question. It's a very fair question and a very good one. And I'm going to give you a very disappointing answer. (laughs) Let me start by saying that, that, yeah, I love the cinema books. I love them. They are insane. And they make, for me, they made the cinema new. It's a completely different experience now. I don't know what I thought it was before, but they really matter to me. And there is, by the way, a very interesting discussion of money in earlier in cinema, cinema too, as well. Like, but this very strange analysis where Deleuze says, what does it mean when there is a screen within a screen? Like, what does it mean when there's a television playing something in a movie? Interesting, it's like, yeah. well, it's about money, which is <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Anyway, it's a complicated argument, but interesting. Bracket that. So... The elements from the cinema books that reinforced the understanding of time that I deployed were really from cinema one okay. uh, and Bergson's notion of uh, habituated temporality. This will become more, more clear in the, in the second book, assuming that I finish it. Um, <laughs> really, the thing that's important, I mean, here Bergson in the way I think very much pre- is like a Merleau-Ponty avant la lettre. Like mm, the things mm-hmm. that he's saying are basically that temporality is a bodily habituated and that, as a result, the way that we way that we perceive the world is filtered through this kind of habituated temporality. And this is the idea of the perception image as subtraction, a subtracted mm. image. The really insignificant thinker of time in uh, in abstract market theory is is Freud. I'll just say it. It's right. Freud. Yeah. Yeah. Freud, yeah. Freud's an account of um, time in the unconscious and the idea mm-hmm. of screen memories. The idea yep. of memory itself is something that is produced rather than about recollection per se right so there is definitely an overlap and a connection with Bergson there but um yeah that's the disappointing answer that really there's no deep time there's no virtual element in the analysis of the market I don't think that we need to invoke that necessarily perhaps this is this is why you mentioned earlier that in your next book again as you said if you hopefully if you if you complete it you know god willing and all this you mentioned that memory and money are going to be a focus so is that going to be something that you elaborate further it's kind of this question because you're right about about the way that freud functions in uh i can't remember if it was chapter three or four the the question of writing and this also links up with nietzsche too he has a kind of interesting way of thinking about this kind of like freud where if there weren't two different systems right if there wasn't the conscious pre-conscious system that sort of perceptual system and then the traces left in the unconscious if everything was sort of you know jammed together on the perceptual field we wouldn't have space for the new impressions right so there is something interesting about temporality with yeah 
that's great because I was just thinking about how you discussed the mystic writing pad. The unconscious absorbs all the information and that's where the habituation comes in. And maybe we should even discuss habituation for the audience. Uh, I always give the example of, you know, it's like when you sort of, you move to a new city and your route home from work or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. at first you, at first you note, you're taking in all the sensory experience. Everything's new, but eventually over time you begin to, it sort of like, I don't even know the word. It's kind of becomes a blur. You know, you're Second not really, nature. you're yeah. not really taking in all of yeah. the sensory. You're sort of only focusing on aspects of that, which makes total sense with reference to the cinema, because yes. that same process, right? Because the camera is on, is subtracting from the totality yeah. of reality, which I think that's, I don't know. That's just great. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's hundred percent right. hundred percent. I, I agree completely. What you both said then is, is spot on, I think. And that's the, this is the terrain for me, the mystic writing pattern analysis. I mean, Freud's basic idea that there must be two systems for the reason that you've just indicated. Again, like Nietzsche's account of the two systems is motivated by an historical kind of approach. You know, like how did we breed a, an animal that could make a promise? Yes. That's the great question of the essay two <laughs> of the genealogy of morality. So there are two registers of memory. Arguably, we can say there's three in the sense that there is a, uh, what Freud calls a pre-conscious memory as well, like Mm -hmm. easily recollectable things. And so all the the kind of temporal analysis, it's not really clear in abstract market theory, but in the next book, turns around treating these elements, except for that top level of memory, the pre-conscious memory, Mm -hmm. as social memories. But there have to be, as it were, two registers of social memory that undergird, so there's like a serial conditioning of the three layers of memory undergird conscious experience. Yeah, so my conscious experience of this can here is undergirded by pre-conscious memory, which is mine, if you like, and this is itself informed and modified by well, for what Nietzsche calls it, the memory of words. You know, this mm-hmm. promising memory, and underneath that is the memory of traces. Now, that's just the market for me. So the right. market, anyway. This is, gets very complicated very quickly, but those are the kind of <laughs> that's the idea is to kind of pack in this this analysis. The other figure here is. Bernard Stiegler and Stiegler's idea of, of a epiphylogenetic memory or a technological memory, mm-hmm. which is to me what money is. I mean, money yeah. is, a, is a technology of memory, among other things, but it has this aspect. Again, to come back to the boring aspect of the answer, I don't think we need to invoke the memory in the Bergsonian sense here. And this is one reason why I think cinema, as Deleuze describes it, is so profoundly transformative Mm -hmm. is because it interrupts all this whole apparatus of memory this complicated social productive mechanism with something which is completely impassive useless you know Mm -hmm. to say not commodifiable you know interrupts habit and interrupts the structuring of memory and recollection that all social forms make use of in particular capitalism this notion of of social memory is interesting to me because the first thing that pops into my head maybe this is weird is uh and I only kind of know a little bit about this, but the but kind of Mandela effect, right? That there is right. this this interesting social misremembering, supposedly. And I'm not sure how factual or how experimentally verifiable or falsifiable this is. But supposedly there is this, and it's almost conspiracy theory bordering, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's this interesting, supposedly social phenomenon of sort of misremembering events or dates or I'm not quite convinced by it, especially looking at some of the prime examples, obviously the Berenstein bears. Yeah. It's stuff like that. Like 
I think it's almost more of a social media phenomenon that's that's like that maybe is yeah it's kind of like an urban legend sort of aspect to it i will say that i remember baron scene bears with spelled e-i-n so for whatever that's worth sure (laughs) i don't think we need to necessarily construe any of this in negative terms again interesting yeah Yeah. a little bit touch back on hume like Mm -hmm. what we remember is always affected by social processes i mean this is something that i think stigler is, is so good on you know like that my memories of how to walk home to come back to this idea of you know your familiarity with the city are themselves underpinned by you know like they're embedded in a kind of biological memory as well like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. memory of like my body itself the genetic memory that supports the deployment of habituated kind of bodily agency and so on but these two are also themselves affected by mediatized memory so things like how we walk where we walk, what we pay attention to, these things are all mediatized now. And they filter down and affect the other layers, you know, like primary retention, conscious memory, and also Mm -hmm. eventually epigenetic memory. Like my body itself changes depending on where I walk and what I eat and so on. Right. This is kind of like retroactive affecting of of the structure of what I remember. But it's all social and, as it were, kind of a productive and dynamic in character, as well as being embedded in... um, in capitalist accumulation, you know, this is the idea of the, the individual that Deleuze comes up with the, in capitalism, that we are kind of cut up into these various flows of information, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, larval subjects and, uh, and price would be a flow, right, of information, ultimately. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that price information connection is like a very important connection in the history of economics and the mm-hmm. idea of the efficient market hypothesis, that very famous idea uh, that a market that you know, conveys all information is an efficient market. Seems like a fantasy. There is, it is a fantasy, yeah. But yes. The connection between price and information is an extremely kind of interesting one. Once mm-hmm. we take the idea of information in a more serious way mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. this kind of godlike rays of truth or whatever right. the market hypothesis involves. So we could have recourse here to Simon Dong. Um, yeah. And maybe, but also the other kind of philosophers of information like Rouillet and mm-hmm. I guess that whole tradition. I'm curious about, obviously, two related questions. One, your interest. I mean, part of my interest in his work is from Deleuze, who I think that he's, as you mentioned, he's one of the few kind of interlocutors that, that keeps his, uh, his work alive. But also, I mean, so the translation, right, of Genesis of Living Forms, but also his, his appearance in abstract market theory, I was, I was a little surprised by. I'm just kind of curious um, about how you mobilize him. I kind of sketched out some some topics obviously uh you know his relation to the liz relation to your work your interest in translating the genesis of living forms which was the very first very first thing i tried to translate when i still worked on the blog and i just put up translations i used it kind of as a as a little experimental ground i had a background in spanish and latin i translated the preface to it's probably still up to the genesis of living forms oh my Uh, goodness there's like two essays maybe reviews of his work from like 1950. And then there's two little trans, well, not little, there's two translations by Walker, R. Scott Walker, I believe, from like the 80s, right? And for the most part, until recently with your translation and um, Ed Lebby's translation of neo-finalism, there really wasn't a lot besides, at least in English, right? Besides uh, Deleuze's references to his work in different repetition, and I believe he shows up at least once or twice. He has to in a thousand plateaus about you know 
embryogenesis. I'm not sure about that, though. I, I'd have to check. If he's not there in name, he's certainly there. Uh, in spirit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally everything in the world is in that book, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's a fair guess. Yeah, well, there's a lot of interesting questions here. I mean, I suppose, first of all, the uh, kind of historical situation, you're right that for a long time he was, nobody really paid attention to him. And it's partly a factor of his institutional decisions. So basically, he was mm. born up near the border of Germany, and as soon as he could, moved back there to live with his family. Interesting, yeah. No interest in, like, being a part of the Parisian scene. So Meloponti writes about him a bit towards the end, in The Visible and the Invisible and in... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, his Nature Lecture Series. They're sort of having a bit of a beef with him, a very productive one, and just one of those, one of a hundred things that we missed out on with Meloponti dying when he did. Right. Um, Lacan mentions him in, what, Seminar 1 or 2? That's right. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, pretty sparse. Now, interestingly, in France, the neo-finalism was put on the aggregation. Like Interesting. For, for philosophy, like uh, for three years or something, maybe five years ago. So, Oh, okay. Yeah, bit, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit kicking around in France at the moment. And there have been some journal issues that have come out, mainly kind of helmed by Anne Sevignard. And uh, well, she's been kind of the one waving mm-hmm. the flag anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And she's written on Simon Doan as well. And, and, it, right, and, yeah. and, it, and it makes sense, like, if Simon Doan's kind of having a resurgence, if you want to call it that. I mean, not least yeah. of which by Stiegler and his kind of rise to prominence, but also the, the publication of the full dissertation along with the compliments yeah. and, and yeah. supplements. And then my little translation, you know, that helps at least on this side of the pond. I always mention this. I'll mention it again really quickly, just to give you a second to kind of speak more. I've always wanted to translate his little book on the Odyssey. I find it fascinating. He takes this little hypothesis from Samuel Butler that it was written by this young, this young woman. It was written, first of all, that itself is is a kind of revelation, but it was written by a young woman who supposedly like a princess, perhaps the character of Nausicaa is, is a reflection of her into the text. You know, this, there are a lot of things at least that makes sense of the Odyssey being written, just the different shifts in temporality, the different narrators. It has a totally different structure than the Iliad. That part, at least I find compelling, but the part that it's written by a young woman, I think is kind of this really fascinating hypothesis that Rhea runs with. And it shows the breadth of his work. You know, he's, he's, you know, it it really shows how kind of like Deleuze, he's, he's writing across all sorts of topics, not just science and not just biology, which is obviously some of the things he's most known for, and consciousness, and even embryology uh, and embryogenesis. But but even on on these these kind of wild and wacky theories about ancient literature, you know, it, it kind of shows his uh, his breadth. And I and I always like to tell the story about, I almost think of it as a hoax, the hoax where he's uh, <laughs> about the, what this book on Gnosticism, where he claims to be talking to the this cohort of scientists yeah. at Stanford. And that was one of the things that actually got him a little bit of interest, right? Yeah. It's a hoax. It was a deliberate hoax. If I yes. That way on his part. He, write, he writes his own philosophy as if it was a bunch of, yeah, a secretive society that had come up with this stuff. The Princeton Gnostics, yeah. Uh, it made him quite well known, and people cite that book now still as if it was a docu- document of evidence. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like luckily, thanks to Ria, he got to meet these people that had this weird philosophy. Yeah. But yeah, it's literally his position, which is pretty strange. I do know that at least one other book is coming out in English, this book on cybernetics. Yes. And I think also I have heard rumors of his final posthumous book, The Embryogenesis of the World. Might yeah. Be appearing in English. 
Rieros is this kind of bizarre, it's got this quite bizarre idea that everything is a living being and that to live is to be conscious and that life extends beyond the barriers that we've placed up, atoms, alive and conscious, you know, and that fundamentally that the experience that every living being has of the world is auto-affected, that there isn't yes. really a perception of the outside world, sort of like Nietzsche, you know. It sounds extremely strange, right? But it's based in his like very thorough understanding of 20th century science, quantum mechanics, and developments in, uh, in embryology and so on. So there's this kind of weird clash between all this scientific evidence, animal behavior studies, and this very strange sort of 17th century seeming philosophy of uh, the monad almost. Quite remarkable. But Deleuze picks it up because he's, I think, fundamentally interested in the way that Rier accounts for let's say the structure the structure of perception you know, mm-hmm. these kind of individuated processes within within the being again sort of drawing from Leibniz as well so it's very strange figure why translate him I don't know I was just like enchanted Same. somebody was saying this stuff yeah so I, aside from wanting to understand what Deleuze had to say about him and why it was significant I mean I think probably my use of him in abstract market theory was unnecessary I was trying to develop an idea of the market as a surface, intensive yes. surface. And Ruya seemed to me to be a way of going about that. But now, retrospectively, I kind of feel like I could have left that Ruya stuff out. But it's fun. I mean, yeah. it's fun. It's It makes sense. And I was also thinking about the fact that he even has a book, at least one. I'm trying to remember all the titles he has in his bibliography. It's pretty long. He has at least one book on value. And he's got at least an essay or two on axiology, right? Which I think makes him pretty important as you said not not necessary but again fun and and very um enlightening of what you're working through yeah yeah i think that's right for me and and i think also for deleuze too there's an essay one of the essays on axiology is cited by deleuze in difference and repetition and you're right yeah there's a book called theory of values as well sort of a bit later on and just to jump into different repetition for a second, we can stick a toe in this notion about depth and its primacy without necessarily putting you on the spot. What I was, I'm trying to relate this to a point that I think maybe I had conflated and confused even as recently as a couple of weeks ago when, when Cooper and I were talking. One of a constant that, that I've enjoyed and it's helped me out, and you mentioned it even earlier, kind of in passing, is a conflation between the intensive and the virtual that sometimes yeah. happens. You even go to, into this in um, your great essay on the quasi-cause, which is another thing that Cooper and I have talked about, this kind of transformation of the quasi-cause from logic of sense into anti-Oedipus. I'm not going to make you reiterate all of this. I do think uh, the thing that I was trying to get to was um, this point about distinguishing the intensive and the virtual and not being too quick to conflate them, because in my head, perhaps they were definitely associated which makes sense, but perhaps I, I had conflated them as well. And I was, I kind of want, maybe want you to, to, if not elaborate that, at least point to your sensitivity towards this, because it seems like you are sensitive to this issue that sometimes where this, this sensitivity came from, that the intensive and the virtual can get confused sometimes or right. conflated or, or equated. Yeah, it's a very vexed issue. Um, I guess the first thing I'll say is that The reason why it's so easy to conflate them, I think, has to do with the English reception of Deleuze's work. Interesting. Uh, I.e. that Difference and Repetition was only released in in English in 1995, right? Yeah, 4.95, yeah. So we get, first of all, Antiochus in in English, 
And then Nietzsche and philosophy and the Kant book, the Kant book is mm-hmm. quickly discarded. And, <laughs> a thousand plateaus. and so if you read Antiochus, Nietzsche and philosophy and a thousand plateaus, it's very easy to, as it were, focus the attention on the, the intensive or as affective. Yes. And, okay. to think, and note, note that the affective is kind of primary, especially in a thousand plateaus mm-hmm. with respect to structure. And if you go back to the difference between repetition and you start talking about the virtual as that which is prior to extended and qualified reality, right. it's easy to think that there are two terms in the discussion, the actual and the virtual. And so why did I start wondering about this? Well, it really just came from my puzzlement, you know, like what, I don't know what to explain. It, it wasn't because of anything that I can remember. I just okay, that's fine. banged my head against difference and repetition for a yeah. long, long time. Yes, of and, course. And to notice there are seams. Where mm-hmm. that, like this kind of seems like he's sw- switching from one register to another. Right. That said, if you read the chapter chapter four of, on difference of rotation, Deleuze is very clear. The virtual is the being of structure. He says the being of yeah. structure. Right. When he talks about intensity, embryos, the intensive individual, mm-hmm. these are dynamisms. Right. So how you you can't square these two things? I don't think. Yes. Easily, and nor should you. But basically. The virtual gives the intensive a structure of a kind. It's a differential structure, right. not something fixed and transcendent. But we can, we must analyze them separately. So we have mathematics to think about the virtual. We have biology and, and thermodynamics to think about intensity. So I guess after a while, it just seemed to me to be more and more clear that this was what was going on. Right. And that whole talk of virtual intensity, which is the phrase that often appears, is really... Um, it's not describing anything in the book. Right. Now, final comment. The term virtual doesn't mean just one thing in Deleuze. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the very final essay, Immanence of Life, talks about the virtual as well. A life as virtual. This seems to me to be very far from what he means in difference and repetition. Interesting. So this is the other reason why I think difference and repetition is read wrongly. It's because elsewhere the term virtual has a much more expansive meaning. Gotcha. Um, that seems very much disconnected from the sort of structuralist idea of, of the differential structure. That's actually very helpful. And it's something that Cooper and I have also discussed when um, comparing and contrasting as best we can, the difference and similarities between how someone like Audriard talks about the virtual, for example, right. versus how Deleuze does. And the fact that, as you say, the thinking about it that way, that, that the virtual shifts at least, or at least expands or changes in Deleuze's own work is very illuminating on that point and and would be a better place perhaps to start. I think so, yeah. It's extremely boring, an extremely boring point to make, but yeah, (laughs) I think that's that's true, yeah. Well, maybe I'm- My point, not your point, mine. Uh, Oh, no, no, no. Obsessing about this thing, you know. No, 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 I I, see, but but, but I I honed in on it too, and I I don't think it's maybe as boring as as you think it is, but I I do think it it does, uh, and I was thinking about this too, we can move on after this, I wasn't sure whether or not he gets differentiation with a T and a C. You laid that out. Differentiation with a T is obviously related to the virtual, the mathematical differentiation with the C is related to sort of actualization and to the biological. I was wondering if he gets part of this language from Ruyere or if this was more of something that, that he develops on his own, because it does remind one of Derrida and Difference, where it's something that, that can't be parsed out through hearing. It's only something that can be parsed out 
seeing since it's this homophone, right? That sounds the same, but that can only be distinguished through this this writing. Interesting. I never, I hadn't thought about that. It's the most clumsy term that Deleuze ever comes up with. Uh. <laughs> in the drama differentiation, you know, uh. nightmarish term. But yeah, the answer is I don't know, honestly. I don't know where he gets it from. I don't think, I mean, Rio himself has, mathematics is, one, is the one science of the 20th century, if I can put it like that, that he really has no sense of. Right. Uh, not in, except for very broad gesturing towards set theory, you know. Um, yeah, 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 gotcha. But Deleuze is very clearly drawing these terms from modern analysis and mathematics. And gotcha, yeah. The calculus and so on. So my guess would just be that these are terms that he develops in relation to mathematics. But I guess that would be a way to just move on to this next point. And again, this might be in your conversations with Graham Jones. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but you put it very well, I think, in distinguishing the deconstructive method, which is looking for these symptomatic gaps and sort of trying to find the inconsistencies in systems versus Deleuze, who even if a thinker may seem fragmentary, or even with someone like Nietzsche, who has some things to say about being wary or suspicious of, uh, of systematic thinkers, where I believe the words I put in quotes here are from Graham. I'm not sure the, the nascent systematicity, even in a, a fragmentary thinker. Do you want to speak maybe a little bit about that? Because I really thought it, it, it helped to crystallize their their different methodologies, at least. I mean, that question, it's thought-provoking to me. First of all, yes, that line is from Graham's PhD thesis. I find it, it is the single most helpful thing for me in reading a book of Deleuze's. You know, Interesting. The always, what is the system? What's the horizon of systematicity at work in this? Yes. On Proust or cinema or whatever. It's always about constructing a system or drawing a system out of the very famous buggery idea, you know, I did the history of philosophy, but it's a pretty dumb analogy, I think, because there's a sense in which he kind of like, even of Kant, for instance, you know, that he systematizes Kant in a way that is, um, goes beyond what Kant himself would be willing to do. Right. But give, gives us a strong portrait of Kant. It involves bending some pieces, shifting, as it were, the significance of some bits relative to others. This is the direction anyway that Deleuze goes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, vis-a-vis Derrida. I think we have to distinguish here between what Derrida is talking about as a system or he talks about it as a structure as well. Right, and right. Famous structure, son and player. So he's talking about Western metaphysics and yes. various instantiations of Western metaphysics. So it is, as it were, that the structure is already there. In Deleuze, on the other hand, we have an idea of the production of a system. Interesting. This, this idea of heterogenesis. Yes. You, know, like you read Nature, Nature's not systematic. Just, I think it's probably fair to say, at least to some significant degree. Right. But Deleuze produces a system mm-hmm. or drives in that direction in reading nature. And so this is connected to this notion of the system in heterogenesis that yes. you brought up as well. Derrida does not think it's possible, as it were, to have... I mean, I'm just repeating things that everybody knows about Derrida, right? There is like no, radical, no radical creation for Derrida. Right. Um, creation is impossible. Invention is impossible. Nevertheless, dot, dot, dot. And a deconstructive gesture. But for Deleuze, he's just completely uninterested in these questions of Western mm-hmm. physics, of the association of system and violence. He thinks he, both that this is wrong and that he doesn't really care about it. He said it himself, you know, the most innocent of his generation. No concern for these questions. And that's something that I think deserves merits like serious attention 
we should take the Derrida Deleuze distinction very seriously. It presents us with two conceptions of thinking, of philosophy, of philosophical practice. It educates us thinking yeah. about this. But it should be obvious I've already decided which side of the fence to fall down. Yeah. In my, yeah. In my view, I mean, Derrida is an educator, first of all. Mm. That when mm. we read Derrida, we learn how to read. We learn how to pay yeah. attention in a rigorous way. But if you yeah. stop there, that's a mistake. Interesting. Yeah. I like that. It's like it, yeah. And so we need to go beyond that to a, to put it in my naive way, a kind of productive moment where we mm-hmm. think anew. We create yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, this this was something we talked about with um with Vern Sisney, and he kind of falls on the side of Deleuze as well, although he makes a pretty strong argument for why Derrida's sort of tendency to privilege the negative and why that's important to the motor of deconstruction. You know, there is he makes a pretty strong argument for why that too has its merits. And I do think though it's interesting that one of the things that I I really enjoyed in also elaborating their difference, and we can again, move on from this, is Derrida's caution or maybe dismissal of philosophy as concept creation, which Deleuze kind of at least elaborates most, you know, declaratively in, in what is philosophy. Perhaps you're referring to Derrida's obituary for Deleuze. Yes, yes. Where he says, you know, he starts by saying, I don't have any objections to Deleuze, not even virtual ones, which is yes. very, and then he goes to list two at the end. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Why does he use our toes, body of the organs, the way that he does? And why did he identify philosophy as creation of concepts? And it's for the reason that he does disagree with both of these readings. Derrida's own texts on our toe are amazing. Amazing mm-hmm. texts on our toe, including this incredible book on, on our toes drawing, which I Interesting. recommend highly enough. And, of course, he doesn't think that concept <coughs> creation is possible for, like, a whole ramified series of reasons, you know. Right. Not only that the level of the concept is already caught up in a kind of the metaphysical system of history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also the creation itself or invention has this kind of possible impossible. I was trying to find a quote and I don't know if it exists, so I may have made it up. Here's the Mandela effect thing going on. Or maybe it's just my individual uh, predilection. I could have sworn Deleuze says somewhere that that what he was practicing was metaphysics or that he considered himself yeah. a, a pure metaphysician. Yeah, he says this a couple of different times. That's right. Gotcha. Yeah. Metaphysics, pure metaphysics, just philosophy in the traditional sense. He says these kinds of things a lot. Yeah. You might be thinking of the letter to... Um, to a harsh critic? Jean-Claude Marton. No, oh, okay, okay, the letter. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, he says it in there as well. That's right. I mean, I agree. There's no reason to denounce this. This sort of touches on some of the other questions that you, you two have posed as well, which is yeah. concerning like postmodern, post-structural. Yeah. These labels. I, I, I've, I'm completely indifferent to all of these. <laughs> These are marketing labels in my view. Right, um, right. And they function just like marketing labels in the university. They're not philosophical. You know that line, like, there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music? <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same in philosophy. There's good yeah. philosophy and there's bad philosophy. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's the whole story. <laughs> we are contemporaries of Plato. Right, right. We, yeah. The, to get into the other kind of, like, well, He's a little bit of a postmodernist, isn't he? This idiot kind of debate. This yeah, yeah, yeah. Peterson-style mudslinging. Oh, yeah. Like beneath the level of idiocy in my view. Postmodern neo-Marxism or whatever it is that the... Oh, yeah, the, the uh, yeah. I, I suppose what I what I meant, I was hesitant writing it that way, was was a shorthand for some of the contemporaries, even some that you mentioned, or we've mentioned, you know, Derrida, Lyotard, Baudrillard. I'm not trying to speak for them, and I could be just mis 
reading or misthinking this, but there does seem to be a hostility to metaphysics. And this may be a, a post-Kantian thing. Maybe that would be a better way to phrase it. A sort of post-Kantian hesitancy to... And I was also thinking about Mayasu and his way of kind of, of framing this as if we're going to sort of move past some of these impasses with regard to correlationism, there needs to be a kind of non-metaphysical solution. Maybe that's also what I kind of had in mind. And so thinking about how Deleuze doesn't shy away from this and even doesn't, isn't bothered by the, whether it be the closure of metaphysics or, or the, the death of philosophy and all these things, he's, he's not really bothered with this. this. This kind of maybe reiterates some of the points you've already made, but I, I suppose that's, yeah. that's part of what I was thinking of. Let me clarify that. I didn't at all mean to criticize your question. It's, uh, oh, yeah, that's fine. As you said, it's a really good question. And <laughs> that's fine. I think, first of all, everything you said is, is really revealing. You know, I think post-Kantian is a decisive determination here. And of course, still to, I'm thinking of a Leotard title, a note on the meaning of post here. But, but of course, post-Kantian means more than one thing. And it can mean we're done with Kant. And True. Not that many people would boldly say that, except for maybe <laughs> Mayasu now. But also that we are, as it were, in the wake of Kant. Mm-hmm. Deleuze and Lyotard and certainly Foucault and Derrida are post-Kantians in this sense. But it's true that Derrida, sorry, Deleuze is the only one who really wants to embrace the label of metaphysics in, in a classical sense. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the, the naivete or the innocence. It is. You it know, is. Uh, that's right. Speaking of letters to a harsh critic, I was trying to think about how he formulates it where... He says he hopes he never wrote something that would like that would hurt someone's feelings. Even and I, and I suppose that even includes Kant and Hegel, whom he kind of considers as enemies. I forget exactly how he says it, but he kind of says like yeah. basically like he hopes he doesn't write something that would make another thinker cringe. But at the yeah, same, I think he says I think he says sadder. Sadder. Like to get back to this question I about think, I think that's it. Yeah. To get back to this question of saddening, I mean, I suppose it's. I suppose if philosophy, one aspect of it is, and he has a lot of different definitions of it, concept creation is just one of them, right? Throughout the works, even like yeah. with, with uh, empiricism and subjectivity, it's the theory of, of what we do, uh, you know, and it even has one where it's, um, it's about a portraiture. So a lot of times we remember it's about buggering and giving birth to this monstrosity that would yet be the philosopher's own, you know, it couldn't be disowned by them, a sort of bastardization that would be faithful. But there is there is also this sense of a portraiture. And I think it's like, he doesn't want to make a, a portrait that would be, uh, I don't know if unrecognizable is the right word, but as you said, it's, it wouldn't, you don't want to, doesn't want to be saddening. And that, that does seem to go back to his innocence and his, um, even when he's disagreeing with Hegel, he's, he has, for example, in Nietzschean philosophy, right? He's he has a targets in mind, and he has he has problems that he's trying to highlight rather than rather than being being polemical like uh, like something that at least Badu in his early years would do, right? You know, uh, or or being dismissive. He he is engaging with someone like Hegel very seriously, and the and the kind oh, of the, yeah. the spirit of Hegel is haunting him. But but again, I, that wasn't really a question. That was just kind of riffing there. No, sure. I mean, that's all true, I think. The whole Hegel thing, I suppose. I mean, he says elsewhere, like, every story needs a villain, which I, I quite like. I mean, yeah. Calling Hegel a villain is, is to give him a positive position. in the That's system. true. You know, he's not anti-Hegel, which, of course, as everyone knows, would be the dumbest possible position to occupy vis-a-vis Hegel. Hegel has a positive, provocative position. And I still think, setting aside what happens in Nietzsche and philosophy, which is very clearly motivated by a response to the phenomenology of spirit, 
I think that Michael Hart's very early book on Deleuze, there's a chapter on, on Nietzsche in there, and he, and he says that Deleuze's main concern with Hegel is not the phenomenology, but the science of logic. And I think that is very, very true. And Interesting. The problems that he has with Hegel concern much more profound kind of structural questions of meta metaphysical questions than yeah. simply the slave morality issue. Right. And this partly comes up in chapter four of difference of repetition around the yes. calculus as well. Right. It very clearly gives an, a non-Hegelian rendering of the status of the differential in that chapter. Again, these are all like super inside baseball type uh, hey, things, but yeah. This is part of the thing like Cooper is, has recently kind of introduced me into someone like Stirner and, uh, and more deeply into the world of Dune. These are his like right. favorite things. Okay. And some, some of my favorite things are Deleuze and sometimes it is a little inside baseball, but I think that this is partly why I, I, I thought to engage you is, you know, sure, sure. we're, we're going to, we're going to go uh, more deeply, but I will take a moment. I know um, Cooper, I, I know you added a couple more, more questions. I don't want to, I don't want to hog the, the spot we could go back and talk a sure. little bit more about amt as i call it abstract market theory that's what i call it. yeah i picked the AMT. title very specifically to flip the bird to actor network theory which is ah i <laughs> AMT i didn't come before it in the alphabet yeah there you go i i didn't think about that and uh yeah yeah that's but, you know you gotta like slightly those kinds of digs best to keep uh implied rather than i like it explicit <laughs> that's Speaking of inside baseball, that's an inside joke, right? Keep the polemics uh, sub subtext a little. <laughs> I like it. Don't undersell my own interest in in Deleuze as well. No, no, no. I wasn't. <laughs> I was. I was just. I was. No, merely, I, I was merely trying to say this is no, this is part. This is part of the process. Is it's getting give getting, and take, right? <laughs> getting some, and you know, it's a. Yeah. Uh, I do think that that perhaps you know our. I think our audience is kind of the perfect audience for right. this. Oh, yeah. So don't be yeah, bashful. Don't be afraid. Don't, yeah. Don't be bashful. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. I honestly think it's a it's a relic of um I mean here in Australia in Melbourne where I live, yeah. we during the last couple of years, we were locked down super hard for a mm -hmm. really long time. And I for the most part was in this apartment by myself. And it's completely screwed with my sense of social etiquette. Oh uh, like, no no. Who who wants to talk about Deleuze? Nobody wants to talk about philosophy. <laughs> That's crazy. That's... We lost that kind of social like, going yeah. to the pub fighting yeah. with people about Kant or whatever. This is exactly what this, this forum is for. And exactly. uh, it's about the vibes. Yeah, yeah. Podcast. Vibes. Yes. That's right. That's right. We'll go back to abstract market theory because uh, so the whole the whole reason I was sort of going into the temporality element was I thought it was kind of interesting how you sort of describe the way that prices like the temporality of pricing because it's sort of like these predictive models are always sort of, they're sort of fooling themselves into saying they're predicting a future, but what they're really doing is sort of drawing from the past. And I don't know if you could perhaps go into a little bit about temporality and its relation to pricing in the market. Cause I think this is a super interesting thing. And I don't know if even, I guess the derivatives would be a, a whole other line of uh, questioning. Sure, but sure. The analysis that I give is really just a an extrapolation from Bergson's argument in the possible and the real. Whenever we say it's possible that I could have not come on this podcast or whatever. <laughs> yes. Um, what I'm doing is retrojecting the current state of the world intellectually into the past and stripping it of retrojecting it into the past. And I'm adding this kind of extra element to it that it was right. possible and this extra kind of feature. The thing that's important to me about this analysis, other than the fact that it, it has astonishing reach, I think, in contemporary thought, it's yet to be kind of plumbed, I think. I mean, mm -hmm. the use of possible and probable everywhere. So it's not just economics, you know, but it's also, you know, utopian political thinking. 
you know, yes, the yes. degree to which this invokes a possible future is already caught up in this. The only future that we can imagine to be possible is one that is like ours already. So it gives up in the first moment, a priori, if you like, the kind of utopian reach of the thought itself. Now, just parenthetically, I think this is also a problem with the faculty of the imagination, which is mm-hmm. way too much power in my view in contemporary political thinking. And this is, let's just bracket that. Let's not talk about the imagination. These kind of predictive models, and this is the point that Ayash makes, most famous one, the Black-Scholes model for yes. derivative pricing, work in the way that Bergson talks about. You know, they take a current situation and they say they retroject it and add this kind of extra feature to it, which is to say that it's just it's a form of intellectual validation of the present. But when somebody prices something, it is because it has no, there's no reason to price anything at any price at all. It's completely contingent or arbitrary. That active pricing can't be, as it were, fit within this probable projected outcome kind of analysis that we get with Black-Scholes. So there is a contingency that necessarily is associated with price that interrupts the habitual repetition of the present. This is the second half of the thing, which we talked about before. This real significance of Bergston's analysis is not that thinking in terms of the possible is a mistake that idiots make. It's that it is implicit in our mode of existence as such. Right. We cannot but think in terms of possibility. It's built into the kind of habitual framework of our experience of the world. So the final step, the third step, if you like, in the sequence for me is simply to say that this habit of thinking in terms of possibility is not an individual habit, as Bergson tends to present it to me, but is actual a social habit. Right. That contemporary society always, as it were, gives us the possible worlds that we deserve. I love that. allows us to discriminate between and prioritizes some possible worlds rather than others as a way of thinking about the present. And then fourth point, if I... The last thing to add would be that I think we already get this in Foucault's analysis of power. And that's what I say in the conclude, the last chapter. You know, mm-hmm. When Foucault talks about the operation of power, he says what it does is, it, you know, it's not famously, it's not negative or oppressive. It produces things. What it does, he says, is valorize possible states. So if I think about my future actions, some possible courses of action get valorized more than others. That's mm-hmm. how power works, is to kind of distribute possibility. So we see now that it's not really a social habit per se, that it is indeed the very kind of activity of political power in society is to organize our understanding of possibility, a possibility which is itself only a form of reflection on the present and not right. on the future. Right. This is really helpful I, I, to contextualize the move that May Assume makes at the end of After Finitude, which is, right. you know, that probability when applied to the universe as a whole is kind of invalidated, right? It's, it can only, this is the difference between chance and contingency, as he points out, it can't be totalized. And in yeah. the, the formulation you just made, which I think is great about, we have the possible worlds we deserve is a very kind of Deleuzean Guattarian way of uh, formulating it, right? Because uh, what is it? He says in Nietzschean philosophy, and I, I actually tweeted this out earlier, so I'm going to look at it and just make sure I get this right. We always have the truths we deserve as a function of the sense of what we yep. conceive, of the value of what we believe. And Guattari says in the opening pages of the machine for unconscious that we have the unconscious we deserve. I think a difference repetition Deleuze talks about we we have the the problems merit their solutions depending on how they're they're sort of formulated, which is why it's so important to have speaking of power, to have that that's the real power, right? Is being able to formulate problems. Again, that's just right. these are just yeah. reflections. Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. To kind of summarize what the, the broader point, 
the temporality issue is central here, I think. One of the features of sort of neoclassical economics in a way is that it's, it's uh, atemporality, you know, that there's only ever barter relations. They can be completely formalized without loss. They certainly don't tackle something like even something which is a relatively basic mathematical point that Mercy makes, it, as you just indicated, Taylor, the, the non-totalizability of, of the infinite. You know, mm-hmm. there are, there's no set of all sets. It's impossible to overstate how much of a scam neoclassical economics is, <laughs> given the scope of its influence, yes. which is just insane. So anyway, introducing that, one of the elements of introducing the temporal aspect of the analysis is to interrupt this kind of atemporal heaven of barter relations that we get in neoclassical economics. Related to that is a question about the status of history as well, because I think that there is a certain Marxism here I'm bouncing off of some remarks made by Pierre Class, the, the anthropologist. You know, mm-hmm. that, that some Marxists tend to think that there have only ever been two forms of society, capitalism and pre-capitalism. And this is a way of like denigrating and, and basically dismissing everything before, not allowing a discrimination into different forms of pre-capitalist society. So I think one of the key things moving forward for the, this second book in economics for me is insisting on the difference between pre-state and state societies yes. and social formations. And it's only by doing this that we find the means to properly understand money, I think, properly understand the nature of social memory, because we don't get, we don't kind of bundle it all up into some sort of generalization. This is something that Cooper and I have have really enjoyed speaking about, and not only uh, in Society Against the State, but even in the two volumes of Capitalism and Schizophrenia, where there is this almost this paradox of given the non-evolutionism that they that they subscribe to and that Cluster at least partially subscribes. They have a little beef with them later in, in The Thousand Plateaus, but for the most part, he subscribes to that that it's not as though all pre-capitalist societies are going to evolve or just haven't evolved into them. But even this paradox of the Urstadt, which seems to always loom its head beneath every empire. There's another empire. Its empire is all the way down. Anyway, Coop, it looks like you... Not to, I mean, if you want to finish your point, please. Nope, nope. No, I, 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 was just kind of, I was I was just kind of saying how you and I have had some good discussions on on uh, Cluster's work. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely enjoy the anthropology stuff quite a bit. To go back to the talk on derivatives, I thought it was interesting oh, yeah. how you brought up uh, both, I guess, this way in which, I guess it's like this sort of critique of Kant in a sense where the underlying assets that make up these derivatives, there's a disentanglement, like they're totally, there's no real connection to the underlying assets. And I'm, I thought back immediately, I don't know if either of you have seen the film, like the big short where they, they go to the bond rating agency. I forget which it was Moody's or something like that. And they're like, look, all of these, these fucking mortgages are these underlying bonds that are supposed to be, you know, that are bundled up in these CDOs or other forms of derivative, et cetera, are like falling. What the, why the hell haven't these prices dropped so i don't know i thought that was like an interesting (laughs) kind of application of sort of your argumentation to some degree but i don't know you may disagree but i'm kind of interested in that discussion of how i guess there's much like language i guess signifier signification like there's only this sort of system relative to you know everything sort of hangs in the balance imminently yes yes that's right i mean that's true There is a good analogy there with, yeah, the Lacanian idea of the mm-hmm. signifier. That's right. I mean, because fundamentally, and this can simply be described by saying that prices, pricing is contingent as well. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The oh, yeah. The, the big line that you do, you said that all pricing is derivative, not, they're not just these derivatives. That was the big right, point, yeah. I think. That's right. Yeah. In other words, that there is no, um, 
I mean, it has two senses. First, that price is not native. The mm -hmm. Social production is a production of value or evaluation. Mm -hmm. Price is something in addition to that. But also that, yeah, that everything is priced on the same surface. You know, there's not like two markets. There's traders tend to talk about, you know, there's the, yeah, the market in the underlying oil or whatever. Yeah. You know, Microsoft stocks and then the market in derivatives. But they're all priced at the same level. You know, right. there's not really... There isn't an ontological separation between these two sets of prices, if you like, right. as they're inscribed in the market. And that's the crucial thing, I think. Now, the problem, like Black Scholes, right? Basically, uh, it looks like a tool for predicting the future, to put right. it crudely. But really, the way that it's used by traders, and this is what Ayash is sort of getting at as well, it's used as a kind of tool, you know, um, and really, it's a tool that links together price and volatility and most responsible traders trade on vol, on volatility and not on price. They'll buy something at a certain volatility level, which is to say, in other words, that the, even at that point where it seems like the, the metaphysics of possibility and probability are most concentrated in financial activity, it's actually not central whatsoever. There is this kind of ongoing contingent relationship to volatility or kind of radical contingency, if you like. Now, the reason why the derivatives are significant in that book is simply comes down in the end to the aperture that Ayasha's work gave me. So I just sort of started with him because he is interested in derivatives. But yeah, as you just, you get very quickly to the point where you're just talking about price. Once you banish the difference between underlying and derivative at the level of the being of price, if I can put it like that, then mm -hmm. you're just talking about prices. And I think this gets back to why Riere is actually helpful here because you're describing absolute service, uh, right. uh, self-survey, right? Um, yep. That's exactly why I took him up. It seems, I mean, you've just kind of like, the two of you just reconstructed my argument, basically, for the first <laughs> couple of chapters of the book. You can see why you would go to Rudia. Like, yes. uh, it's an idea of a surface that doesn't have things on it exactly. The surface mm -hmm. itself modulates. Yes. And these modulations are prices. Mm -hmm. You know, the texture of the market itself is itself the kind of means by which the prices are recorded on the market, in the market, as it were, yeah. How would this relate to intensity? Because I was thinking about price as like as a sine wave sort of thing where yeah, yeah. there's like that just makes logical sense in the sense of like you can see, a, yeah. you know, a price spikes or it troughs. And, you know, there's kind of this ongoing sort of wave process rather than these specific points where price, I guess, what you would say crystallizes right. or whatever the case. But it's really it's constantly in motion, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> It's a kind of a phase space, the market, if you look mm -hmm. at the surface of the market. So it's not two-dimensional, but three-dimensional or in terms of visualizing it. So whenever one price goes up, it affects the prices that are proximate to it. And here's where Ruya is useful as well, because he also talks about, you know, that there's no radical elsewhere mm -hmm. on the surface. You know, every, every price is related to every other through a kind of series of uh, right. ramifications, if you like. More like, and again, this goes to the signification. That was why I was thinking, you know, the signifier signification, because it's still, it's kind of this, it's kind of like everything sort of holds in the balance and one move here is going to shift something else. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the thing that is missing, of course, is the quilting point in the Lacanian analysis. And it's interesting, uh, our mutual friend, James Cullum, that's his kind of, one of the things that he's trying to think about is how you might introduce the point de capiton, you know, the, the function of the master signify into the, the kind of process of, of pricing. Right. It calls into question, or at least it, call, it begs the question of, I mean, that's not the word, this discussion of the modulation of the absolute surface. It, it's this question of where are the, as you said, the master signifiers, where's the transcendental phallus or whatever <laughs> that, that upon right. which everything right. hangs. 
And well, for me, there isn't one. Right. For James, he thinks that there, there might be. Well, there might be it, some function that engages this. Interesting. If any kind of stability arises at the level of value and the social production right. and reproduction of evaluation. Basically. Right. Which would get us into sort of, well, it would get us into, obviously back into the question of social valuation, as you, as, right, yeah. as Rie mentions, as Hugh mentions, as Marx mentioned, it gets us into these broader things that perhaps are, I don't want to say external to the market, but related in a complex way, which is why the, the last, the third conflation you, you deal with is differentiating or distinguishing the market and the social. It That's gets right. back to That's that. Right. This yeah. is kind of a jokey comment, but I was just thinking about the, uh, especially with the way that inflation has become such a recent topic of discussion, these kind of really funny, like, I don't know if you would, they're not anachronisms, but it's almost like that something like Arizona iced tea is 99 cents or like the, uh, the hot yep. dog at Costco is $2 right. or some shit like that. <laughs> well, the, the, the dollar store is now the dollar 25 store, right? I mean, it's. <laughs> But That's the hot dog a, remains the same price. Yeah, it's, it's quilted into the social fabric. The, the, yeah, the, <laughs> there you go. I mean, it's. Uh, I have heard. I don't remember where I saw something. Maybe it was some clickbait about some dollar store fanatic is talking about everything's a dollar twenty-five or whatever. You better bring some quarters. I don't know. It was that's something I was thinking about. So maybe if we are to stick with James for another second about the quilting point you're talking about, perhaps those are relative stabilities that can stabilize for more indefinite amount of time, but still have leeway in movement. That's right. I think that's it. The relationship between, this comes back to the point about intensity. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. the market is an intensive surface in, in the sense that it is, is realized or played out in terms of extensity, in terms of like social materiality mm-hmm. and the values that come to qualify that materiality. Right. But the movement is from intensity to extension. To qualified mm-hmm. extension, basically, or evaluated social practice and material reality. So they're not separate per se. There is a kind of, I would want to say simply that there is a kind of, um, it's a transcendental relationship between mm-hmm. the market and the social. It's not, the market is not some elsewhere. It's right. implicit in social practice. We can always analyze it on its own terms, but that, we have to remember that it's always, it's not heaven. It's always being realized through social practices at every point. So it's just this kind of like ongoing variation in social reality that is affected by prices problematizing particular social instances and processes. So you could imagine two undulating surfaces related to one another where the lower level or market level is figures as distortions in the the organization of motion on the second surface. That's precisely how a price functions. When you go into a shop and you see a price, you're forced to ask the question of value in relation to it. So it problematizes the evaluative relationship to reality that is characteristic of society, I think. This is maybe uh, related uh, somewhat to this question of the, the quilting points, the, the stability points, and the, and the modulation of the surface. But this interesting notion, if I'm going to say this correctly, so black swans, as Taleb works it out, are these wholly unpredictable events that can seemingly be retroactively explained or predicted. But if we go deeper into contingency, which is the way you dive in, into the book, we get to this point very quickly whereby whereby insofar as probability is kind of been deflated to a certain extent, either we're left with all white swans where everything's predictable, including these catastrophes or crises, or all everything is our blank swans, which 
I'm not exactly sure how to articulate, but I wondered, you, you try to make this point somewhere in the sort of early middle part of, of the book. And I'm wondering about this, this question of which, which ones do we, do we have and, and how can we formulate this? I'm sure you can formulate this a little bit better than, than I can, but. No, no, sure. Yeah. It's a great question. And again, this is um, Ayasha's, one of the things I take from Ayash, you know, he says, what's required is a transcendental deduction of the black swan. Interesting which is a fantastic formulation. And what he means is that, well, let's start with Taleb, right? Yeah. So okay. Taleb defines the black swan as having these three characteristics. Effectively, they're kind of surprises, bad surprises. Now, he is basically a Humean. You know, they're, they're bad surprises in the sense that our habituated relationship with the world doesn't make room for them. And so when they happen, it's like a relationship breakup, you know, where someone says, we need to talk. You know, <laughs> this is the sun, this- the sun didn't rise. The billiard ball flew off the table. Whatever. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What do you What do you mean? We need to talk. Ayasha's point is that Taleb frames all of this in terms of probability and possibility, and that the real the real issue with prices is not that they are that some prices are black swan unexpected. The problem is that the whole mode of thinking about events and prices in particular, in terms of the possibility, is wrong. And so we need to ask ourselves, why is it that we tend to think in terms of possibility about events, especially black swan events? And so basically, so Ayash wants to replace the idea of unlikely with contingent. And that would mean that, yeah, all swans are equally black, if you like, or we should talk about the blank swan, which is the name of Ayash's book. So a transcendental deduction of the black swan is an explanation for the relationship between the contingency of events and our tendency to frame this contingency in terms of probabilistic analysis. Right. I was going to jump in and say it, the question of uh, Taleb being a human and relinking this to Mayasu and contingency, it seems like there is a frequentialism, as Mayasu calls it, where it's is the goal for Taleb to try to minimize the frequency with which black swans appear and, and therefore to be able to protect everything in a certain sense? Uh, no, no. Okay, I mean, gotcha. That's a good question. He's humane in this regard as well. His next book, Taleb's next book after that, the black swan was anti-fragile. Okay, oh, right, right, right. Okay, yes. Yeah. So the solution is just like, we should be more humble. Interesting. Right. Okay. Should restrain our tendencies to make hard and fast claims about what's possible. It's not, as it were, a kind of move from absolutism to frequentialism or anything like that. It's a kind of a moral or an ethical stance he's asking hmm. us to adopt in relation to the world. But yeah, the problem for this problem with this for Ayash is just that it's still framed in terms of possibility and probability. Right. We just need to be sensitive to the fact that our probabilistic analysis are sometimes not capacious enough. Yeah. And he's like, well, you've done nothing. You've done nothing. You know, you've become more timid, but everything else is still there. You know? Right. In order to save the, the system, in order to save, yeah. whether it be the capitalist system or whatever you want to call it, and speculation in this perverse sense, it's to become more humble, but you're, it's like becoming more humble to shackles or something like that, right? It's, it's Right. Yeah. Just settle in. Settle in. But I think also it's also just to um, have relinquished the critical a critical move a real gotcha. genuine critical move in the Kantian sense. Gotcha. Um, yeah. That said, I mean, you know, like if you propose to somebody that we should stop using probabilistic analysis in science, you sound like a crazy person. Yes. There is no science today that is not predicated on um, probabilistic analysis, including things like physics. You know, like like the study of quantum particles is about the likelihood of a particle yes. being in a position. 
you can see why just being humble is a more straightforward solution for a lot of people than, you know, that's dispensed with probabilistic thinking. No more Wolf of Wall Street, no more cocaine and during the trading hours, right? uh, (laughs) But it also seems like that's a kind of response to what Cooper brought up earlier with CDOs and be a little bit more humble and you won't have have a crisis that devastates the economy or something like that, right? That is effectively the upshot of all of the kind of ethics panels and oversights gotcha. and reviews, you know, mm-hmm. in ten, at least at the kind of mainstream orthodox level. I mean, CDOs were, there's a sense in which, I mean, again, our, our mutual friend, James Cullen, who works for a bank here in Australia, he pointed out to me the other day, everyone, all the people who were working in finance knew exactly how CDOs worked, you know, like right. not the people who were like managerial level, but the people, as they used to say, in the pit, or huh? actually coding the algorithms knew exactly it's got relatively simple mathematics. Mm-hmm. The problem came at a different level in the process. You know. Anyway, this is by the by. It's good. But CDOs as well. I mean, that's the other thing. IR says these are not derivatives. This is another of his exclusionary gestures. But it seems wrong to me that they were priced. They were priced in the market at the end. That's the yep. only kind of relevant thing from this point of view. I thought it was interesting. I know you made this point in passing, but the different tranches of the credit default swaps or whatever, you know, the more stable ones, the higher ones may have been quote unquote more valuable or had better prices, but it it was the riskier ones or the ones that were more likely to default that could have been more lucrative. I thought that was, that was interesting. One more risk. I mean, you're assuming more risk of loss. Gotcha. 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 Again, like, as I said before, like the basic uh, relationship that pricing tools like Black Scholes work with is the price volatility. Yes. So you buy things, the higher the volatility, you've got to pick the, your, let's say, taste for, for volatility. For <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. That often comes first rather than what prices is selling at. Yeah. Right, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's that's also why, you know, Deleuze's thoughts about the differential and uh, all of this is, oh. is, is a central starting point to get into all of this is great. And, and I learned a ton from uh, the abstract market theory book. And I am looking forward to your follow-up, as you said, which not to use probability, but hopefully uh, <laughs> we, we will have to. I know I had, a, I had, had a bunch of other questions on Hume and these other things. I'm trying to think uh, a good way to, to start to wrap up. I know we've had you for almost two hours. No, well, yeah, for more than two hours. Time has, has flown. We've discussed a lot of things. I'm sure there's uh, something else we can kind of wrap up if you guys are are ready to you're the ones that are plunging into the darkness of night over there (laughs) (laughs) you've been very generous with your time and and but but i I know we could talk about a ton of other things and and, in a certain point there has to be a what the the ananke the the the, the infinite regress has to has to stop i guess (laughs) i guess um my I, I'm trying to remember what if you want to formulate questions. if you want to take a moment to formulate I have a quick comment because yeah, I, used to, I have, I used, have your comment I, had, I, I probably to, have a Deleuze question to, to <laughs> ask so I used to trade Apple stock oh, because yeah. at the time it was like 600 bucks a share or something like that and the volatility was something like you know a few dollars you know it could swing within a week by a five dollars let's say share price so i would like basically keep right. doing that and then reinvesting and like based on that just the standard deviate the volatility on a day-to-day or yeah. week-to-week or month-to-month basis and try to take profit that way from the market yeah there it is which is a foolish thing to do. Don't ever try to. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely could have lost my uh, 
myself a little bit, but I guess, you know, Apple wasn't going to go anywhere. So I felt a little bit safer. (laughs) I think that's probably true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I guess uh, instead of going deeper into a subject, this could be a kind of a a lighter note. I say that, but you may uh, think this could be a broad, this would be a broader note. That's not a lighter note. You, you said something that, that I hadn't thought of, but I should have, which was you mentioned this need or this desire both, I suppose, for uh, a critical edition of Deleuze's works, perhaps something like the Cambridge text, you know, and I was, I was intrigued by this. I just wanted to, to maybe this could be something broad on, on Deleuze we can use as an outro. I'm, I'm curious about maybe this feeling that struck you, whether it be through writing on Deleuze, obviously at length, and you said you kind of perhaps arbitrarily chose you know, when I'm citing Deleuze, I'm, I'm going to cite just the first versions that come out, the first translations, you know, just, just give me your sense of this, this desire for a critical edition. And if it would come with retranslation, some works need them more than others, perhaps. Yes, uh, and we could talk just a little bit about this. Yeah. I mean, to get back to your thesis on Derrida, this question of translation too. I mean, there is <laughs> those aspects. So I'm curious about this. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This idea. It's come up a couple of times in passing over the last 10 years. Um, uh-huh. Semi-officially. The reason why it's going to be difficult to make it happen is that the rights for the books are yes. owned by one publisher. Rights for the, the English translation. So that's one thing. What to say? I suppose, first of all, let's just go back to, again, the order in which Deleuze's work yes. were translated and published. This affected the way that subsequent books were translated, obviously. <laughs> Because the the sort of established Deleuze scholarship by, let's say, the early 90s Mm -hmm. was heavily coloured by readings of a thousand plateaus. Gotcha. Yeah. When you take this and try and translate the logic of sense, for instance, just to Mm. give you one example, right? Yeah. Anti-Oedipus, thousand plateaus. Everybody knows that Deleuze and Guattari hate psychoanalysis. (laughs) Quote, unquote. And if you look at the in the preface to Logic of Sense, you'll see that yes, the I know. Translator has said, you know this line, right? This is this is my attempt to write a psychological novel. It says in English, but it's of course psych, psychoanalytic, a psychoanalytic novel. This is one example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. the affect of the scholarship on the the work of the translator. No judgment, right? Translating. No, no, of course, of course. Horrifyingly difficult. That's one thing. It would be a me going back into. The works from the now a kind of more stable point of view and terminologically speaking could correct right. those kinds of things the two other kind of tendencies that people had i mean many of the translators early on weren't philosophers like what uh thomason uh, was a, it's like a lawyer yeah i forget the exact story or at least this, but... at least that's his main occupation but i, I i've looked into yeah. him and i found out he's a barrister or something like that and i was like yeah. something like that yeah anyway so like there is a there are some issues around that, in particular, the, the kind of use of Kantian terminology. And Deleuze like, very routinely uses the opposition between in principle and in fact. De facto and de jure, right? In Latin, right. Um, which is a Kantian and Bergsonian distinction. And that is translated, I mean, en fait in French can mean, you know, it can be taken in a very kind of colloquial, straightforward sense, but it actually has a terminological weight. Yes, Stuff yes. like this, right? Yes. Somehow gets kind of submerged a little bit. The other thing that happened is... In the other direction, which was translators being too careful. Here, the key example, I think, is probably Patton's translation of difference and repetition. The, the title of the fourth chapter, right, is he translates it as ideas and the synthesis of difference. And that's not, it's something about. The literal is ideal, but uh, totally ideas and the ideal synthesis of difference. Yes, yes, yes. And he's done this to avoid the impression that, you know, Deleuze is talking about the ideal synthesis of difference and like the best one. You know? Right. I see. 
I don't think that would be a reading anyone I, would have. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But you know, it's obvious that he was. I mean, he said this to me. He was motivated by a concern that people would misinterpret those. Um, those kinds of concerns, I think, need to be addressed. To put it in the simplest and very crude way of putting it, um, there needs to be a corrective and a corrective republication of Deleuze's work with a sensitivity to philosophical terminology, in particular yeah. Kantian terminology. The further thing to say, unfortunately, is that a couple of the books are just unacceptably bad. I've always heard about the the fold oh. being bad, and and <laughs> it's I the worst one. I still have to ask why. Maybe you have a, an example or two, but I've yeah. also found um, the translation of the Foucault book to be a yeah. little undesirable. That's the other. Okay, uh, they're both they're the examples, really. So the fold, um, there is. I'm gonna. I guess some people know this already, but. Dan Smith has done another translation of the fall. He's mentioned he mentioned that on the podcast. Yes, he's he's and it is he, exceptionally good. He's got to put that a bootleg on it. He can use uh, fair use or something as, but I don't think cool. he's going to do that. He's not like me where I just I just bootleg things. And, we got to get that copy from him when whenever we do. Oh, it. you should. Yeah, <laughs> he did. He did. He did say he would circulate it privately. So oh, nice. It's really good. The Foucault book is the other one. Yeah, which has got just sections which are just uh, unacceptable. You can flip through it and, and kind of see it. So those are the issues in terms of the quality of the translation. And the other thing I think is just that Deleuze has been a victim of greed, publishing greed. There's so many mm-hmm. editions of his work now, four or five different printings yep. with different page numbers. And yep, yep. This makes it hard to have a shared conversation about the work. Makes it hard. Mm-hmm. So why yep. not just knock this on the head, you know, just do it, correct the translations, commission new ones, publish them nicely, no fuss. So that would make every, everybody's life easier. Yeah. Life is hard enough simply put so it probably easier on the estate side but as you said on the right side a lot of there might be some territoriality not to bring in a really just not not even to pun on Deleuze but that would be there'd be some territorial as you said greed being one factor and because when you said that thought I it, it was like oh well of course we need that and I, I was thinking about again Dan Smith and um, Charles Duvall who they've spent a lot of time trying to get the seminars together and potentially talks about publishing as a book, but you know, with, with technology, the way it is, it's, it's, it's nice that it's easy to access. Although I'm sure lots of people too like books, although I don't know how many volumes that would be. It's maybe only a few, right? Three or four. But I was thinking something like this, if it could be, you know, Cambridge or whatever, I I, I doubt they care about Dulles, but who knows, Uh, (laughs) you know, something like that could go a long way. Could go a long way, yeah. Bloomsbury has most of the rights, so they would be, they're in the position to, it's feasible in my view. Yeah. Uh, the two times that I've approached them about it, we'll see. That would be nice. Yeah, that, that would be nice. be nice. I think the the one thing I will say about Bloomsbury, and I'm not going to trash them necessarily, but I don't, I worry that they, and this is not necessarily an academic thing, but I worry that they are not necessarily ones for critical editions. They're, no, no, sure. You know, but but they would have the wherewithal. That's obvious, and it would fit there. Obviously, the press that I think of that that is the powerhouse would be Edinburgh. But you know, that's yeah. Um, yeah. That, again, they, it's I a mean, question of rights. They right. would do it if they, they had the rights. Yeah, blink of an eye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Bloomberry stuff at all. I have the translation of Libidinal Economy from Bloomsbury, and I'm I don't I don't like the the binding itself, like just the, yeah, yeah, the aesthetics like of the that. book. It's just right. but plus like. Come on, it's libidinal economy. Like, seriously, put some effort in. Good grief. 
I have the older Continuum version, but that's that's the same company under a different name. I like I like the cover and the binding better, but my concern was more of the direction of editing and oh, taking sure. that t- taking that seriously. You know, where I think they're more of a, a publish as much as possible rather than it's more quantity yes. than, than quality to sure, get back to sure, yeah. to market shit. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But that was something that, that that was interesting that interested me and that um and that that I was I thought that that was a really really good idea and I'm sad I'm sad to hear that you've already tried to follow through and actualize it right so <laughs> maybe times are different I don't know we'll I, I guess we can't predict the future right is that's one, that's, <laughs> that's, that's one thing we that's one thing we've learned but speaking of, of future John we we've had a great time discussing and going into the weeds and the inside baseball and on <laughs> all of this. I will say that I feel bad that, that we didn't have time to talk about your book on aphorisms. I had some questions off the top of my head, but I found uh, flipping through those to be fascinating. And I was thinking about the way Deleuze reads Nietzsche's aphorisms, right? The two sided yeah. thing. But what we would like to do obviously is extend an invitation to have you back, hopefully around the time we've got more to say about your forthcoming work, because we've only scratched the surface. And it's it's really been just a, a pleasure having you. It's been great, honestly. I'm sorry that I've been robbed. I'm now like robbing you of sleep, probably. But no, no? Yeah, it's been it's been great to talk. It's been great no. to talk. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to come yeah. back. Yeah. Oh, great, excellent. And uh, you know, as as you said, it's it's nice to be able to to have a forum where you get to talk about these things. You've been cooped up. Sorry, not the pun again. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just it's just been it's it's been a delight. And it's uh, this sure, is of course this is one of the reasons why we. We like to do this and, uh, yeah. and, and have... It's a fantastic forum you got here. I'm so glad you, you think so. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah we, really... we need to have you back and uh, we'll let you get the rest of your day started. Hopefully you've got... Cool. Some, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe you've been inspired to, to write uh, some pages in your new book. <laughs> what, you, you have at least two works you're working on. I guess that would be the last thing. Maybe maybe oh, say, right. say a word or two about, about your future work and we can we can close out the show. Yeah, that's a good idea. So four books. I'm currently four thinking. books. Okay. <laughs> the next market book, which is going to think be called Elements of a Continental Philosophy of Economics. Okay. The second of the Deleuze volumes. So works. Yes. Yes. The book on the American filmmaker Hal Hartley. I don't know if anyone remembers that guy, but um, I've been. I had to wait together a little book. I had to look it look him up. So that's uh, something that that I'll. You, do you have a film to recommend to start yeah, with? It, if you're going to watch any films to start with, probably watch Henry Fool. Okay. Uh, which was, he won a, a Khan award for the screenplay for that. Uh, okay. Is that the, uh, the Kenneth Branagh directed? No, no, no. He, he directs everything himself. Right? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Henry Fool. Yeah. And yeah, another book of aphorisms, which at the moment it's easier to write titles for books than actual content. So it's got like six or seven titles, but at the moment it, it's called Burial at Sea. Burial at Sea. I like, I like, I, I, I like Seducer Died. Was it Funny or Die? Was that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe think of that, but also uh, maybe think of Baudrillard, obviously seduction, but uh, it, right, it's, yeah. it's just like, I also thought of it as as self-reflective. It's like either these aphorisms are going to do something for you or you have to come find me and, and put me out of my misery. All of uh, that, that's right. Yeah, that's the great thing about aphorisms. That you, you can imply several other readings without having to make them explicit, you know, Yeah. unlike philosophy. I guess the last question would be is, is volume two going to cover everything post 69 or is it going to, yeah. so it's a two volume project. 
Yeah, uh, this assumes that I'm capable of doing that. I've toyed a few times with breaking it up into two pieces. I'm like Achilles in the hair, you know. <laughs> books get half, half, half. I'm putting the Deleuze and Guattari pieces together in one volume. That would be my question: Is it is it going to be the yeah. the, the Deleuze and because it does, but it still spans a a long time, so it wouldn't be chronological really anymore. It would be diachronic yeah. to a certain extent. But that but that it, doesn't matter. Yeah, that's still almost as many pages as the volumes you covered in in volume one if you think about it right because even capitalist schizophrenia that's a thousand pages or so you know so so that's a makes me uh, (laughs) you're thinking thinking about finishing that thousand plateaus chapter just makes me oh god just quake in terror you (laughs) have you have to come up with some axioms of inclusion and exclusion there's got to be like something unless you pretty much break down each each plateau you know, but that's complicated. No, I yeah. mean, I've got, I realize now we've said goodbye and I'm still talking. <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. This is what we do. So <laughs> uh, I think um, there is a, there is a way of reframing the whole of the book in Good. terms of general ontological claims to more specific analyses. I like it. Um, that's one way of, I think, organizing the book. The only thing that gets left out a little bit is the uh, three novellas. Um, plateau. And it's sad because that's, that's actually a fun one, right? It's and it's, oh, cool. and it's, yeah. it's short and sweet. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking of uh, you could use Badu's uh, four truth procedures as a <laughs> you know. Uh, although he he claims, as you know, that Deleuze doesn't consider politics as as having a you know, which I I take issue with. But that's not right. A well, that's thing. definitely something that we should talk about next time. Yeah, uh, on your book on on your book on yes yes uh, on you're sympathetic to to Badu's point. That's yeah. Okay, well, that that could be something we could hash <laughs> out. I think Badu is a terrible philosopher. Like, <laughs> oh wow! But it, oh. yeah, I love it. Oh, we'll leave on. We'll we'll leave that uh, on that note. That, <laughs> yeah. that 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 could be something we we talk about again. So yeah, uh, you know, expect hearing from us perhaps in the in the in the winter time. Oh, I'll yeah, probably shoot you. Yeah, probably around November. Um, that's around our birthday. We're actually born on the same day, by the way, Cooper wow. and I. That's that's <laughs> nice. it's star-crossed podcasters but um, <laughs> we'll let you enjoy the rest of your day and sure. this episode will drop in about two weeks and i'll send you an email I'll let you know when it's live and uh cool. you can you can however you can get news out you can tell tell your, your pub friends and your and your colleagues <laughs> uh to, to come right. come come here and shoot the shit sure absolutely thanks very much all right thanks okay. again john Tremendous pleasure, John. And uh, once again, thanks to John Rowe for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, 
Lobotomized people as in uh, block work or range.